Again, my name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. And like I just mentioned, we are in a series that we are calling Light of the World. And the idea behind Light of the World is really simple, that we live in a world in a day and age where there are all sorts of uh, people, all sorts of ideologies, all sorts of candidates, all sorts of things vying for your heart and for my heart, promising to be a light, that if we would trust them, if we would walk with them, uh, they would enlighten us and lead us to a form of salvation. And, and what we're, we're making the case that there are spectrums, right? You can be in pure light. You can be in absolute darkness. You can be in a spectrum. Uh, so it's not that everyone is completely wrong in everything they say, but we are making the case that when we look at Jesus Christ, the Jewish itinerant minister who lived 2,000 years ago, we are seeing exactly what he claimed to be when he walked the earth. We are seeing the visible image of the invisible God. We are seeing the creator of all things manifest in him. We are seeing the spirit of God localized in his physical form. And so in his words, in his teachings, in his worldview, um, we, are, we are being instructed and we're being called into a way of life that allows his light to fully dwell in us. And that's the claim. I know it might not feel like that fully. It might feel really difficult. It probably should. And we're going to talk more about why it is today. But when we follow Jesus fully, his light dwells in us, and we experience the abundant life and joy and peace and, and um, all the best things that we so strive after in our day. We, we've talked about Jesus' inaugural sermon these last couple weeks. Jesus shows up after he's tempted by the devil, and he preaches a very short sermon. He says, the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe. And two weeks ago, we said, what does it mean to repent? In the first century world, and very much parallels with our own, repentance for first century Jews who heard Jesus's message would have meant to abandon their revolutionary zeal. See, they thought when the Messiah shows up, when the Messiah shows up, that means we're going to destroy whatever occupying empire is in power, and we're going to uh, reestablish Jerusalem and Israel as a sovereign power, a sovereign nation in the world. And Jesus says, yes, that's true, but not the way you think. Because it's not flesh and blood. It's not the cascading, um, uh, constant circle of, of, of empires that come and go, whether it's Babylon or Persia or Assyria or Rome. But in fact, it's the kingdom of the Satan, the adversary that is at work in all of them. So when Jesus says, repent, he's saying, I want you to see the true enemy that's at work for your soul and in this world. And then I want you to believe. Ryan did a great job last week of saying belief does not mean what we think exclusively, but it means a, a way of life. It is to bend the knee. It is our thoughts, it is our hearts, what we love, and it is our bodies, our actions that pledge allegiance and say we are followers of Jesus more than anything else. So then what we want to do from here is ask the question, okay, if that's true, if Jesus is saying, hey, the kingdom of God is here, it's available for you, repent. Give up the ways you thought you understood this world. Give up the ways you thought you understood yourself and believe in me. That is to say, bend the knee, follow me. The question is, well, then what constitutes Jesus's existence and his ideology? What are we being invited into as followers of Jesus? And I want to look at one passage. It comes from Matthew 10, 
verse 7 through 8. And this is Jesus sending out his disciples. But he really makes clear what it is that our lives should look like. And this is what he says. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. I'll read that again. What is, what is our assignment? What does Jesus want us to do? He goes, go into the world and proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven, God's rule, God's power is here. And what will accompany this proclamation? Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers. Drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at each one of these um, assignments, these clauses. And today, what I want to look at is the one, drive out demons. Drive out the darkness. The light drives out the darkness. Now, we're immediately presented, you probably heard that passage, and we're immediately presented with a, a, an impasse, right? Because it's very clear to us how much Jesus's worldview is not our own in the West. That there is a chasm between the worldview of Jesus Christ and the Western secular worldview. I don't have time to go into all the, the inconsistencies, but just a couple. I, I would, I would, for anyone who wants to see how the Western secular worldview is actually really inconsistent and really feeble in a lot of places, I want to recommend to you a philosopher by the name of David Bentley Hart. David Bentley Hart. He's got a great book called Atheist Delusions and another one called The Experience of God, being, consciousness, and bliss. But he really points out um, how it's very inconsistent in a lot of places. And, and two, just for, for our purposes before we go any further, um, uh, scientific rationalism is very much a proponent of the Western, or I should say it's a tenet of the Western secular worldview. And scientific rationalism says that we cannot believe anything as fact unless it can be empirically proven. But the Hopefully you notice, how do you empirically prove that statement? That you can't believe anything is fact unless it's empirically proven. You can't. It's self-refuting, which that throws us for a loop. Secondly, um, what, what, what you notice often in the Western secular worldview is that there's a total disbelief in the spiritual realm. There's a total disbelief in God or gods or powers beyond just the material, beyond just the physical. Um, but when you sort of ask questions of, of like our purpose, so you say, hey, why do we exist? The answers are given, well, there's atoms and there's matter and you know, this is what happened. But that's not answering why we exist, that's answering how we exist. And you'll notice this, that often there's so many questions for why do humans exist? Why, why is there such things as love and joy and, and all these why questions and the Western worldview only knows how to give how answers. They, they explain, well, this is what happened and this is what happened, which may be true, but again, that's not answering the why. And so there's a lot of inconsistencies in it, but that might be a sermon for another day. What I really want to focus on is I want to assume that most of us here have at least some concept or some belief or some doubt in that worldview, that perhaps there is a realm of the heavens, as we're told in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a spiritual realm and a physical realm that somehow overlap 
that somehow work together, that somehow are competing. There's all sorts of stuff happening. And, and maybe what you're wondering is, is well, okay, that, I'll accept that, but why don't I see the spiritual realm? Why don't I see angels and demons? Well, first of all, according to the Bible, you do, because we're told, um, remember to keep practicing hospitality, because in so doing, you have welcomed angels without knowing it, that perhaps there are spiritual beings that take on a physical form that we don't even realize. Um, so we do, first of all, but secondly, uh, here's what I would say for why you don't see the spiritual realm sometimes. Uh, we, Anna and I, my wife and I, we have a friend, and um, uh, she was having some health complications, and so one of the, uh, the diagnosis, the, something to try for her, was to deworm herself. Yes, you heard me right. Deworm herself. So she had to like take this medicine, drink this juice, and um, she, this is going to get a little gross, but uh, essentially, she called Anna. She was like, you would not believe it. I went to poop, and there were like hundreds of little gray worms in my poop. And she was like, what is this doing in my body? <laughs> Where did these come from? So here's what I'd say. You don't see the spiritual realm because you yourself are in the spiritual realm. The battlefield's not out there. The battlefield's right here that I, the physical Russell, am also participating in a spiritual battle to which there are worms trying to destroy my soul, to which God is saying, let my light in to give you salvation. Remember a couple weeks ago when we wanted to describe what does it mean to be spirit or spiritual? Dallas Willard, who was a famous uh, philosopher, Christian philosopher at USC, this is how he described spiritual. He said, it is unbodily, personal power. Unbodily, personal agency, personal will. And that, that personal agency, it can be localized. For example, me, right? I'm a physical creature, but I have a spirit. I have a willpower. If you want to find me, what should you do? Well, you should not go looking inside of me. You shouldn't cut me up because you won't find me. Rather, my spirit is localized in this body, and according to the Bible, it will also be localized in a new body in the new wor world to come. So we are spiritual creatures localized in physical bodies, but spiritual is unbodily personal agency. And God has that, where we can experience the spirit of God, his unbodily personal power agency, but so does the Satan. So do the forces of darkness, according to Scripture. So where are those? Well, so on the positive end, anytime you experience, I don't know if you've ever had this moment where you like see a sunset and something happens, like you're moved and to such a degree that it feels like you're being called up into a bigger story. There, there's, you're being awoken to a bigger world than what was the world you were just living in. What is that? That experience of beauty that experience of joy, transcendence. Or you have a dinner with friends and the joy and the friendship is so tangible. Hours pass without you even realizing it. Or maybe you've experienced a moment of generosity where like someone is so recklessly generous with you that you're undone. These are the elements of the spirit of God. 
that he is breaking into the world and he's calling us to recognize him, to see him, and to be in relationship with him. But on the negative side, because that's what we're focusing on today, on the negative side, uh, we wonder, what does that mean? Uh, Where do we see the spiritual realm of darkness, the spiritual forces of darkness? And let me ask you this question. Have you ever done something and like you were kind of playing with the idea and then you finally went all in and did it? And you just shocked yourself that you were capable of that? I hope you haven't, but I definitely have. I've definitely had a moment of like pure self-destruction where I knew that this was not good, but at a certain point, I just grew so fed up or so, I don't know, I just gave myself over to it and engaged in pure potent destruction. What was that? What came over me that I would act like that? Or, or the opposite, have you ever known that you, that you should do something, but you just you can't do it? There's something whispering in your head that's like, hey, don't do this. It's too much work. It's too costly. It's not going to work. And then you finally do it. You finally do what is right, what is good. And there's such a feeling of liberation and freedom that comes over you, Right? because you're sort of like let go from that thing that was holding you back. What is that? I would argue those are the worms that are at work in our soul. Those are the powers that are holding us back from the full presence and the spirit of God, the fruit of the spirit. And then you sort of like, that, that's on an individual level. And then you sort of expound or expand it outward to a group level. Emil Durkheim, who studied religion, he talked about this concept of collective effervescence. And that's essentially, I don't know if you've ever been to a sporting event, and it got rowdy. Like, it's electric. I went to a Premier League match. I'm a big soccer fan. I went to a Premier League match, and this wasn't even like a big match. It was just a normal game. But the energy, the energy in the stadium where everyone's heart was collectively geared toward the same thing, they wanted their team to win. And in that energy, in that spirit, um, it's, it almost like takes on a, a, a mind of itself. The whole becomes more than the sum of its parts in that moment. Vice versa. You ever been a part of a mob? You know the power of mobs, where there's like something that comes over everyone, that it feels like, what are we doing? What is going on right now? It's like we're being swept away by something that is more than the sum of its parts. It's the same thing. And then you sort of expand it outward, where it's not just small groups, but now it's systems and it's nations. There's a power in these large masses of people based on a shared ideology or a shared history or a shared sin. Perhaps there's a sin in a large group of people that just keeps holding this people back. It just holds us back from complete freedom. Where does that end as you keep tracing it outward? I would argue it ends in the spiritual realm. The heavens and the earth that overlap in places. Where do they overlap? They overlap in us. We are the battlefield. And this is exactly what Paul says. Again, if we're assuming a a, a biblical worldview, if we're allowing the Bible to instruct us, this is what Paul says. He goes, our struggle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the forces of evil in the heavenly realm. 
So we are called to bend the knee to Jesus's ideology, to Jesus's worldview. Can I just pause here and say something else that I've noticed recently? And Dallas Willard said this in this book. I've noticed it in my own heart. Can we acknowledge that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, was the smartest man to ever walk the earth? Like, I don't think we acknowledge that. We say like, oh, wow, he had, he had a lot of power, right? He, he represented God. But can we acknowledge that if those are true, then Jesus understood the world better than anyone who has ever understood the world. He understood human nature better than anyone who's ever understood human nature. The Bible is smart. There's a reason why it's the best-selling book and has been by a mile because humans find something in the Bible that speaks to them in a way that no other pundit, no other news source can. They find something there. That Jesus speaks in a language that might seem very easy or seem simple, but it's endlessly profound and leads us into a way of life. So maybe this is tough to hear on some level, but can we just start from the assumption that Jesus might be smarter than us and sees things we don't see? And so if we, if we do that, then, then when we look at Jesus's ministry, we see Jesus say, uh, or, or it's basically like, what, is, what characterized Jesus's ministry? Well, this is what we read in Matthew 4, 24. It goes, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. I talk about that, that passage right there because notice often people want to say demon possession or like the work of demonic powers or the work of the evil one were simply unknown science or it was epilepsy or something. But clearly, there's something, they have a category for epilepsy, those having seizures. They're saying something different. Jesus assumes in his worldview that the cause of longstanding affliction in the earth, in your heart and body, is not some unknown science, or it's not your willpower, like, oh, you should just do harder. Try telling those with addictions, just work harder. Sheer willpower. The basis of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, is that we have no power over this thing. It is a spiritual problem that needs a spiritual solution. The basis of Jesus' worldview is that it's not your willpower that will do something. It's not some unknown science, but there are dark powers, principalities and powers at work. There are worms in your stool, guys. There are worms in your stool. And how do, how do they hold on to us? How do these powers hold on to us? I talked about the social dilemma a couple weeks back. It's that, that new documentary is getting a lot of uh, press, I think for good reason. But there's a moment, kind of a mic drop moment in the documentary where they're looking at um, social media and how social media is su super addictive and holds on to us. And there's a moment where it says everyone's afraid of AI reaching the singularity, right? When, when AI is now stronger than human strength and it no longer needs humans and all of that. But he goes, what happens when AI doesn't overcome human strength but overcomes human weakness? What happens when AI is stronger than our weakness? 
That's what we see. Where does the dark powers hold on to us? They don't hold on to your strength. They hold on to your weaknesses. They hold on to those past shames and mistakes or the things that you experienced when people wronged you. They hold on to societal brokenness that is at work in your soul. And that is what they use to keep holding you back from a life of abundant joy in relationship with God. Jesus came to drive out the demonic rebellion that is in our weakness, that is holding us captive. And when you look at the Gospels, it's been said 12% of the Gospels were Jesus driving out the demonic. Not just 12% of his actions, but 12% of all the verses in the Gospels is Jesus driving out dark powers that are at work in our souls. 1 John 1, 6 through 7 puts it like this. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Guys, you are the battlefield. You are the battlefield and you were made for perfect relationship with God in the light. But there is darkness in you. You don't want Jesus' light fully in your life. You don't want his presence fully in your body, in your mind, in your soul. Why? Because the darkness is an unbodily personal power. It has agency, and it doesn't want you to fully live in the light. It's holding you back. Now, real quickly, because this is going to be a much longer sermon, and I've already decided in the new year we're going to go through some, some aspects of the biblical worldview. What is the history of, of darkness, of, of Satan, of the devil, all that stuff, of the, the demonic? What is the history? Because we have some pictures in our heads that might be unhelpful. So real quickly, we're told in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God creates this beautiful world out of non-order. There's this abyss. There's this wasteland that the Spirit of God is hovering over, and he pulls order out of it. And then he creates the, the, the earth. And at the end, he creates this garden on the, high, on, the, on the pinnacle of a high mountain. He calls it Eden. And it's this place where heaven and earth overlaps. Now, on the sixth day of creation, humans are made. But you notice that humans are made last, but God seems to elevate them to the highest position. He says that they have a power to rule over the earth in a way that other creatures don't, even over heavenly creatures. We're told in, in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, Paul makes this passing comment when they're Christians trying to like, they're debating and they want to sue each other. He goes, what are you doing? Why, do you, why are you suing one another? Don't you know where to judge angels? Can't we judge one another? And that is to say like arbitrate um, issues. So, but he throws that in, that in his worldview, humans actually judge angels, heavenly creatures. So humans are created last but they're elevated to a high position. Then, in Genesis 3, we know the story, a talking snake is in the garden, and he tempts Eve to grab hold of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil because it will make her like God. Now, maybe you're like, talking snakes are strange, but perhaps not in this, in this um, Eden where the, the spiritual and the earthly overlap. 
And here's why I would say this, because there's this really interesting line, if you remember, after, um, after God discovers what has happened, the sin that has entered into the garden, he looks at the snake and he goes, you're cursed now to crawl on your belly. And maybe you're thinking, wait, don't snakes already crawl on their belly? Well, interestingly enough, no. There is a creature that doesn't. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah, he has a vision where he's in the heavenly throne room of God. And he sees these creatures flying, encircling God's throne, and praising God, saying, glory, glory, glory to the Lord of hosts. And he calls these creatures seraphim, not cherubim, which are flying uh, heavenly creatures, heavenly beasts, but seraphim. And interestingly, I mean, it's, it's, it's usually not translated. It's just said seraphim. But seraph is a very well-known Hebrew word. It means poisonous snake. So what Isaiah saw in the throne room were flying snakes. So perhaps what we have in Genesis 3 is a heavenly creature, a seraphim, a flying snake that tempts Adam and Eve to, to grab hold of something that God had not given them. And in fact, what we see in the biblical record is that this arch rebel is never given a proper name. It's only his activity that is described. So I know I said earlier, and sometimes I got to catch myself, I said Satan, like that's his proper name, but it's not. It's actually the Satan in the Hebrew the Satan, the adversary, the accuser, the one who opposes. You have the devil, the one who slanders, who lies. You have, um, you have Lucifer. Maybe you're wondering, what about Lucifer? Well, Lucifer is actually an interesting translation of Isaiah 14, verse 12. And in this translation, um, Isaiah 14, verse 12, uh, this is what God is describing to the arch rebel who tempted Eve. And God says, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you have brought down, but you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. So Lucifer comes from morning star, son of the dawn, lose light. And then over, it's a Latin translation. And then over time, it just sort of became this proper name, but it's not. So what you see, guys, what is at the heart of this darkness, these dark powers, the spiritual realm is this rebellion. These spiritual creatures who were created to support the earth, but instead they tried to grab hold. They tried to ascend the mountain to be like God. And God said, that's not what you were created for. So they are cast down. These, this darkness resented their role and tried to grab hold of another role. And where is that darkness found? These dark powers. Well, do you remember in the passage, it says, you who weakened the nations. Just like the seraphim tempting Eve, the darkness is found in its temptation of the nations. It's lodged within nations and kingdoms. And it's actually, there's a lot in the scripture about that. In Genesis chapter 10 and 11, we see the first uh, rebel nation. We see the founding of Babylon, the Tower of Babel. 
where they came together and said, let us build a tower that ascends the heavens that will make a name for ourselves, just like God. And God says, this is not good. And Isaiah, again, the, the prophet Isaiah, there's a section where Isaiah actually talks about the king of Babylon like a flying snake. Oh, sorry about that. So what we see in Babylon and the other kingdoms are, oh, there we go, this beard, guys, sorry. I know it's not much, but that's what it is. Um, what we see in Babylon and the other kingdoms, what the biblical writers want us to see. Should I switch? I'm going to switch. Hold on. All right, there we go. What the biblical writers want us to see in these uh, earthly kingdoms is a joint spiritual and physical rebellion, a spiritual human rebellion against God. We see human powers grabbing for a glory that was never meant to be for us. And why are they doing that? Well, it's because spiritual powers are grabbing hold onto them. And remember, all the way beginning in Genesis 3, when we introduced this, this talking snake, we're told that he was the, there was no other creature craftier than him. They deceived us, and they continue to deceive us. And maybe some of that's interesting to you. Maybe it's not. If it wasn't, then forget it all, all right? Let me sum it up for you right here. Because when we get to the New Testament, when Paul is talking about the spiritual powers of darkness, he simply calls them the powers. Remember Ephesians 6.12. We're going to put that back on the screen. Ephesians 6.12 says it like this. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And that word for powers of this dark world is kosmokratos. Kosmos, cosmos, krateo, which means to hold or to grab. And think about that. These world powers... And the power given to us in a lot of ways was created to hold something as a gift. But where it turns into a rebellion against God is where we no longer hold God's good gifts, but we grab them. We seek to possess them. There are spiritual powers created to hold us, to hold the world, to support the world. You can hold something and support it, but instead... Where they went wrong is they grabbed it. They held it to possess it. And this is what we see in Galatians 4. You were enslaved to what by nature were not gods. Weak and impoverished elemental powers. The spiritual powers of darkness, the worms that are at work inside, are holding us through all sorts of other things in this earth. So in summation, there is an arch rebel who was created to hold, to support, but instead he tried to grab. He tried to ascend the heavens. He was cast down. And on his way down, he drug us down with him. He drug us into the rebellion. The battlefield is us for light or darkness. And we see it. We see the light of God through love and truth and beauty and accountability 
and we see the darkness that seek to hold and grab through anarchy and rage and anti-everything except the self. You and I, we are complicit in this when we, when we try to grab and possess things that were gifts. God gave them as gifts to us, but instead we hold them as our own. And that is the evidence of a power at work in our souls. We hold in darkness the things we try and possess as our own instead of living in the light of relationship, holding them as good gifts between God and us. And the question is, why do we do this? Do you remember Lord of the Rings? What is Gollum? He keeps calling the ring of power. He says, no, it's mine. It's my precious. Why won't we let go? There's freedom when we let go. What are those things in your heart and life that you're holding on to so tightly? Relationships or, or something that you want so badly or, or your money or, or a past um, um, abuse that happened or, or shame. What are those things you're holding on to so tightly? And I'm saying, just let go. Why won't you let go? Because there are powers of darkness that are holding tightly onto you. That's why. You can't let go. Because it's not as simple as just your own agency. There are other powers at work that don't want you to let go. Why? Because they're holding on to you. Your hand is closed, and therefore their hand is closed right on top of yours. So where is it in you? Is it security? Do you, do you hold money as a gift? Or do you hold money held by greed and fear? Is it justice? Do you, do you seek, do you hold justice seeking to make right what is wrong? Or are you held by vengeance? And you need to see, you need to see vengeance come. Is it love? Do you hold God's love in light? Do you know God's love for you? Or are you held by shame and by guilt that won't let you go? Peace, do you practice reconciliation? Do you hold the, 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 the identity as a peacemaker in the world? Or are you held by a tribalism, an ideology that says there can be no peace until they become whatever, like this? Power, do you use your authority? Do you hold power to serve others? Or do you hold, do you possess that, not letting it go? That's where power corrupts. That's what we mean by it. In these positions of power, we're, we're put in positions of authority to serve others. But at a certain point, it shifts. And we don't view our roles to serve others. Now we think others serve us. We hold that position. So where is it in you? Why not let go? Because there's something at work that won't let you go. And what, what is the step then? What is, what is our invitation? Friends, you can be free. <laughs> you can be free. There is a light, the light of Jesus, his name, that it entered the earth and held all the good gifts of the Spirit of God. There was perfect alignment between his will, his spirit, and God's spirit. There was nothing in him that was in the darkness. It was all light. But on the end of his life, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is to say, Jesus 
offered himself up to the cosmocratos, to the world powers, the powers of darkness, and they held him. They grabbed hold of the light, but they could not hold on to him. Because in death, in being buried, and in being raised to life again, the greatest powers of the Satan, sin and death, were overcome by Jesus. Therefore, through his name, the name of Jesus Christ, all those things at work in your soul and life, all those things that work in groups, all those things that work in systems and nations can be set free from the powers of the, the rebel who is seeking to drag us back into non-order, back into destruction. There is a light, but it comes through the name of Jesus Christ. What are the three ways? That there, when I look at the biblical worldview, there are three ways that the darkness is cast out of us. Number one, confession and prayer in Jesus' name. Confession and prayer in Jesus' name. This is what we read in 1 John 1, 5 through 9. And uh, it talks about, um, well, actually, I'll come back to that later. So confession and praise in Jesus' name. Remember uh, AA, what I was talking about earlier with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. When you look at the 12 steps of the 12-step program, it actually talks about the very first thing they have to do is confess their powerlessness. They confess their powerlessness, and they make a searching moral inventory, an admission to God and another the exact nature of their wrongs. So for us, there is, if it's in the darkness, if there's an addiction in the darkness, if there's a shame in the darkness, if there's a secret in the darkness, we must confess that to Jesus in his name and ask his name to enter into that place to drive out the darkness, to let go of it. The second way that the darkness is driven out is through fasting and obedience. There's a section in, uh, a section in the scripture where uh, the disciples try to cast out a demon and they can't. And then Jesus ends up casting him out. And they ask him later, why couldn't we cast that one out? And he says, there are some that only come out by prayer and fasting. Meaning to say that there are some traumas in our lives, some family sins, some, some habits and behaviors and thought patterns that are so deeply ingrained into our soul. They're so deep in us. They're holding us on such a deep level that they will only come out when we give something up, when we fast, and we obey a step that God has given us to take. Fasting and obedience. And lastly, the third one and the one we're about to do, worship and praise. Worship and praise. In Isaiah 6, when he saw the, the throne room, the creatures were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We were created to praise God. What do we see in Jesus? We see a life that at every step is praising God, is offering all he has to God. In praise, when we praise God, we cease to hold, to possess his gifts, which means we let them go and the darkness has to let us go because it can't hold on to anything. There's nothing in us that it can hold tightly to. When we praise the name of Jesus, we are set free. And I'm not just saying, like, sing songs. That's not what I mean by praise. I'm not saying sing. I want to invite the band back up with this. I'm not saying sing songs or say words, though if that's all you can muster, start there. I'm saying in your heart of hearts, when we say, God, there's so much I don't understand, but I will choose 
to give it to you, to praise you, to offer it to you, Jesus? Will you set me free from this shame, this guilt? Will you set me free from this trauma? Will you speak to me? Will your spirit dwell in me and cast out anything else that is holding tight to me? When we do that, something shifts in the atmosphere. Something shifts. The spirit of God, the light of Jesus is allowed to enter in. And so we're about to sing a song, a response. And before we do, I want to pray for you. I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know if this message was convincing at all or not. To a certain degree, I kind of don't care. Here's what I want to say. (laughs) What if I'm right? What if Jesus is right? And what if those voices whispering right now, this dude's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. What if that is actually the presence of another voice that doesn't want to let go of you and doesn't want to see you live in love and in joy and in freedom? What is the offer of Jesus? He's offering all the best things that we all want. Peace. Joy. Forgiveness. Well, well-being in a community. He's offering what you want. Why not take him up on his offer? Because there is something in you that doesn't want to see the light of Jesus Christ enter in. There's something that doesn't want to let you go. So for the next 30 seconds, what is that thing in you? Where does it reside? Where is there a tight fist? Is it something that happened to you in your past? Is it something you did? Is it something you can't forgive? Is it shame? Is it guilt? Is it fear? And therefore, you have to be in control of everything because you're so afraid of living out of a free, fearless relationship with God? Is it a desire to see the world go a certain direction, which is your desire to be God and not trust him? What is it? And then pray with me. Jesus Christ, we know that you are good. We see in your story and in your life one who was so full of compassion every step of the way, so full of truth. You wronged no one. You spoke truth to set people free. But of course, they ended up killing you. We ended up killing you. Why? Because we were held captive to the spiritual darkness. The darkness that has agency that does not want to let us go. Little did it know that by killing you, by the darkness trying to swallow light, that's completely illogical. It can't. And therefore, the light has entered into the heart of the darkness and is driving it all out. And so, Lord, I pray for my friends and everyone listening right now. I pray. I don't know what their situation is, I don't know what their fear is, but I pray right now that in their heart of hearts, they would say, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Jesus, help me. Jesus, I want to see and know your light. I know you're afraid. I know that you doubt it, but just say that in your heart of hearts as truly and sincerely as you can. Jesus, I don't want to be in control of this world. 
because you never made me to be in control of it. I just want to know your love. Jesus, there are certain things that I want so badly, but I, I won't let them go. I let them go now. I open up my hands. Would you cast out the powers of darkness at work that keep me separated from you so that I can know you as my Lord, my Savior, and my friend? If you feel like God is saying something to you specifically, a step of obedience you need to take, then I would strongly encourage you to take it. You'll see why on the other side. If you feel like God is saying you need to confess something to someone else, then I would beg you to confess. Confess. And that voice that says, oh, no, don't do it. Come on, it's too far gone, or they don't deserve it, or they didn't apologize first, or whatever it is. Or they're going to they're gonna reject you, they're going to hate you. That is the voice of the powers that are holding on to you. There is freedom on the other side of that confession. Maybe consequences, but there is freedom. Freedom. So confess. And then for all of us right now, wherever we're at and wherever we're coming from, would we praise the name of Jesus with everything we have and everything we are? So let's praise.